our strap line in the book of Acts would be chapter 1 and verse 8, you will receive power. And we still do the same power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the very ends of the earth. The end of that promise is when I stand in glory, I will see his face, and there I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. Until then, thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Holy Spirit till the work on earth is done. Let's pray as we listen to God's voice in his word again. Father, speak to us with clarity from your word, and we pray, Lord, that that primary purpose of the book of Acts, that is certainty, that is encouragement for our souls, would come like an arrow shot from glory into our hearts this morning, empowered by that same Holy Spirit, God who is in us, ranging, therefore, through this room, ministering your word to our souls. And so we wait as children of God, eagerly and expectantly to hear your voice in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me bring you up to speed with where we are in the book of Acts. If you turn in your Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles, our passage this morning is on page 911, but if you turn back to the beginning of the book, let me just uh, keep us up to speed. It's important we do that. Acts is a book to give us certainty. It's to banish doubts. It's to give us confidence. It's to encourage us. The key verse I read, 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. Jesus has returned to his Father. He sends his Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not a force. The Spirit is God himself on the earth, living in believers, empowering them to tell and empowering the words they tell. The gospel will go forward to the very ends of the earth. And by the end of the book of Acts, it's got as far as Rome, which in the ancient world was the very center of the universe. And that wonderful verse in Acts chapter 28, Paul was in Rome preaching the gospel without hindrance and with boldness. That didn't mean to say he was not soon going to be martyred. He was. But did the gospel stop with the apostle Paul? Or is it all over the earth? today. And what has happened so far? Well, Luke's first volume, Luke's gospel, is all about the birth, life, teaching, death, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus. Acts begins and it kind of intersects with the very end of Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel ends with the ascension of Jesus. Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus. Jesus goes to be with God, the Holy Spirit. God, in the person of his Spirit, comes to the earth. 
and empowers gospel witness. You get that astonishing miracle in chapter 2 as all the people who gathered in Jerusalem that day heard the works of God or the gospel declared in languages they could understand. That's a kind of prefiguring of what would happen in the world in the centuries to come. The end of chapter 2, we got that uh, first little insight into the community of faith. It's almost as if the lid was lifted on the church and you saw what it was like. And it was a church full of devotion. And I suggested when we studied that, it's far more joyful to do something with devotion than it is to do something in a kind of lackluster, half-hearted way. It doesn't bring you any joy. It makes you sad and grumpy. Devotion is a wonderful thing. Devotion, just let me encourage you, uh, somebody pointed out to me when I preached on that, devotion doesn't mean to say running yourself exhausted. Devotion is zealousness for a a pleasurable work. And uh, they cared for one another. And they were always looking to increase their uh, numbers. I was with somebody this week and not from this church, just to reassure you. And they said to me, do you know in our church, I really don't want to grow with people becoming Christians. And I, I, I think to some extent that person was just being honest. I think sometimes that is true for us. It's comfortable. Comfortable. And, but yet they always were kind of sniffing around on the edges who was around, who was new. Chapter 3, uh, Neil preached on that. You look at chapter 3, the, the astonishing miracles that accompanied the, the work of the gospel. Neil pointed out to us that these miracles aren't typical today. They do still happen in the church, but they're rare. They, they were very prevalent in the time of the apostles as a kind of seal on their ministry, their special ministry, and also accompanied the the birth of the church came with miraculous supernatural power. And yet, as we saw last week, Andy Robertson preached last week, very early on, how far on in the life of the early church are we by chapter 4? Let's say a week. Not even as long as that. Not even a week. And over there, at the side as the apostles preached in the temple, there's that little huddle of religious leaders tut-tutting and beginning right at the birth of the church, the religious establishment to squeeze the spiritual life out of the living church. After one week, and it hasn't stopped after 2,000 years, Opposition from outside the church crowding in, whether it's religious authorities, the the state, or just the prevailing mood of secular culture that says, you are tiny, we are big. Because the reality in our city this morning is that if you look at Arthur's seat, the church doesn't feel like that. We feel like this down here. That's the dominant force. It's secular culture. And it presses in on the church and it says, ah, the gospel doesn't work. Now, uh, this morning, we come uh, again to a little side of the community created by the Holy Spirit. And uh, I'm going to say a little bit about uh, verses 23 to 31 of chapter 4. Andy 
read these last week, so I won't read them again, the believers praying for boldness. I think that's a kind of passage that goes with the opposition bit, but it also comes today with a, what's the community of faith like? What I want to do is read from verse 32 of chapter 4 through to verse 16 of chapter 5. So let's read God's word together. Verse 32 of chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed was of one heart and soul. There you go. What a wonderful start. Everybody in the church family was of one heart and soul. Never think that is not possible because the Holy Spirit renders your heart and your soul horizontally aligned to the person next to you. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. This is inside the community. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have committed this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias heard these words. He fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. People also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, these are dramatic events for sure. As we lift the lid and see inside the community of faith, the early church, what do we see? You'll see on the sheet, I've laid out four things that I think we see. One, praying for boldness. Secondly, unity and fellowship. Thirdly, internal opposition and judgment. And finally, miraculous growth. And what I want to do is quickly work through each of them in relation to what happened 
and then try and draw some dotted lines by way of application to us as a community of faith. Now, verses 23 to 31 describe the Christian community praying together for boldness. We didn't read that. Andy read that last week. Notice that they did not pray that God would take the opposition away. They were smart enough to know that the gospel would never prevail without opposition. They did not pray that God would take the heat away. They prayed that God would give them boldness and courage and zeal and confidence to keep on proclaiming the gospel fearlessly. And their prayers were answered. The Spirit of God, verse 31 When they had prayed, verse 31, chapter 4, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Verses 32 to 37 that we read describe the unity and fellowship of the believers. Verse 32, I love this verse. When you read through the book of Acts or preach it, you keep on changing your church vision statement to some new verse in the book of Acts. Here's a great vision statement. Now, the full number of those who were members of the Chalmers Church family were of one heart and soul. Wouldn't that be great? And you know, sometimes I think we really are, because we are. And the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to be. Got to make sure, we'll come to that. You're not checking or hindering or working against the Holy Spirit But his desire is for oneness of heart and soul in local churches throughout the city and throughout the world because when there is one heart and soul, what does that church do? It does not look in, it looks out. And it does gospel stuff. One heart and soul. And that unity led them, yes, to do evangelism, but that unity led them to care. And share, verse 32b, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, and they had everything in common. You know how little children are very, very precious about their possessions. That's my little Lego man. You children, you know that's true. Grown-ups can be very precious about their possessions. Christian grown-ups should not be precious about what we have. It doesn't mean to say we give it away. We'll come to that later. Like this, not prescriptive. But what we have is given to us by God. And uh, Luke records, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to any as any had need. It's remarkable, remarkable. A, a consciousness that what they had was from God an astonishing generosity, and, and it can only be of the Holy Spirit. It's not that Peter and Paul and the others were kind of sitting them against the wall and saying, you will sell your field. It's not that at all. It's the Holy Spirit just motivating them to do so almost spontaneously. All the social and economic conventions of the day were turned on its head. And, and the radical stuff that went on there, I'm sure in, in God's mind, was, was so that the people in the city would just notice what was happening. And notice that little phrase, great grace was upon them all. Isn't that wonderful? And at the heart of this little section, at the heart of this little section, verses 32 to 37, we get verse 33. Look at that. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 
What's at the heart of this community? The preaching, the teaching of the gospel. It's what the Holy Spirit uses. We get a name in verses 36 and 37, Barnabas. Let me let the cat out of the bag for the application, five minutes' time. Do you know how much I rejoice for those of you here who are Barnabases? We're not all Barnabases, are we? We're not all sons of encouragement. God sometimes works with, he works often with our natural dispositions. There are some wonderful encouragers in this church. God bless you for that. May there be many more. Barnabas is named here for the first time. And what a gift he was to the church. You know, Barnabas, uh, we'll see what he does in Acts. He does some wonderful things. That he, he manages, and he's obviously got a lot of ability as Barnabas and a lot of grace and a lot of relational savvy and skills. He manages to unite Paul and John Mark, who fell out, along with Luke's help. How vital was that in the progress of the church? So we see uh, unity and fellowship in the early church. And then verses 1 to 11, what a contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. The unity and fellowship of believers, of one heart and soul united in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden threatened by opposition from within their very, very own ranks. And we need to see that. The opposition before was from outside the church. Now the opposition is right from the very heart of it. Verse 1 of chapter 5, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. The issue here is not, I think, that he kept back some of the proceeds from the sale. That wasn't prescriptive, but that he lied about how much they were giving deceit. He gave the impression they were giving everything, but they were lying. Verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Second half of verse 4, why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied again, lied to men, but to God. Their actions, their deceit, threaten the unity of the fellowship, threaten the oneness of heart and soul, the single-minded purpose of the Christian community to see the gospel spread. They threaten the promise of the Lord Jesus, that the gospel will spread. And whereas the community of genuine believers was empowered by the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira were empowered by Satan. See, when Peter writes later, your enemy the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Where does your enemy the devil prowl around? On the fringes of the church? Right in the heart. That's what he tries to do, get in. And as the Holy Spirit is in the church. How is the Holy Spirit in this room? He's in us, people, not some kind of vague mist around us. He's in us. How does the devil get into this church or into any church? In people. That's what he's saying. And if it is frightening that Satan is in their hearts, what is more frightening is the swift and decisive judgment of God as they are struck down dead. Just imagine that. No wonder, verse 5, great fear came upon all who heard it. No wonder, verse 10, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. 
It does not take long for opposition to thwart the progress of the gospel. Chapter 4, chapter 5, the beginning of Acts, week 1. But nothing then nor now, ultimately, will ever prevent the progress and the advance of the gospel. God will not let it in the end. And then we read in verses 12 to 16 a miraculous growth. The miracles performed by the apostles to give them and their message credibility and authority. They're very striking scenes, aren't they? They they gathered all the sick so that when Peter walked past, his shadow would fall on them and they would be healed. It's not the touch you see of the apostles that heals. It's the God-given empowerment of God through them. It's God who heals. And nothing will prevent the advance of the gospel. What did we read? More than ever believers were added to the number. Multitudes of men and women. It's not that phrase, more than ever. More than ever before. What does opposition do to the church? What does opposition externally, internally do to the church? Not that notwithstanding the opposition, the church still continued, surprisingly, to grow. More than ever, it grew. More than ever. Opposition is the catalyst, always for growth. Now, these are the facts that Luke describes. Let me, in the ten minutes we have left or so, try to draw some applications. Number one application. Here's the big application. And it's the big application of the book of Acts. What does this insight into the life of this early Christian community say to us? It says to us, I want you to have confidence, confidence in the promise of the Lord Jesus. Just look and observe with me, Luke says, what happened in these early days of the church. Just look at what kind of community was created. It was totally different from anything else in the world. People were liberated to an astonishing generosity. They realized that everything they had was not theirs, but God's, and so they gave it away gladly. They prayed for boldness. They were generous. They were kind. They were united. They were in fellowship. And when opposition came, and the opposition was strong, the religious establishment yesterday, today, in the very heart of the church, The Spirit of God is opposed by Satan. And yet even notwithstanding that, the gospel multiplies exponentially against that. And that says to us one thing above all else. You and I, living in difficult times in the western part of the globe today, can have confidence, rock-solid confidence, in the unstoppable power of the gospel. We just need to be faithful God willing, one day the Spirit of God will return from the east to the west of the globe and our faithfulness will yield into much, much more multiplication of fruitfulness. We can't engineer that. We can hinder it, though, by thinking it can never happen. Confidence. Have confidence. Just to say, don't ever change the gospel, though. Or take its edge off. Notice what the apostles 
encouraged the church to do when they were opposed, to pray with boldness that they would proclaim that one clear gospel. They prayed for more clarity, more confidence in the true gospel. That's what will prevail, and only that. Praying for boldness. What can we say about that? We need to draw dotted lines. We can't draw straight lines. Well, we can here, surely, can't we? How, how could I draw a, a dotted line into our church family from what happened here about praying for boldness? Should I tell us to pray for a little bit less tentativity when we proclaim the gospel? Or for boldness? Here's what I want us to pray for as a church family, for boldness, spirit empowerment in proclaiming the gospel, holding on to that true gospel, spirit empowerment publicly on Sundays, spirit empowerment in our events, spirit empowerment in our own lives as individuals. That's where we need the boldness most. Why did our evangelistic event not work next Friday? I'm comfortable with that. It's just not going to work for sometimes these things don't work. So you don't do something that flops. That's fine. But we want to do evangelism. We want to see the church grow with people who aren't Christians. Surely we do. I do. You do. I know you do. We need to yield to the Holy Spirit and ask for boldness and courage and maybe be prepared to learn that you don't do evangelism by running all sorts of events. You do evangelism by building strong relationships with people who aren't Christians and allow God to just... But we need to, we need to pray for boldness. Our mission partners around the world, we need to pray for boldness. That they will proclaim the gospel in the eastern side of the globe where the church is growing exponentially fast but the opposition is exponentially strong. Pray for boldness for them. Pray that for Christian leaders in our country. We cannot do it in our own strength, nor can our gospel partners, only the Holy Spirit. So, no dotted lines drawn from this praying for boldness, straight lines. And don't pray that the difficult times will be taken away, for they never will. And nor should we want them to be humanly, yes. But very often they are the catalyst for gospel advance. It is striking to me when people come and visit our church family now. And you know, when, when you have little children, I have promised our children not to talk about them in church. So don't you dare tell them. Somebody always does. When you have, this is a generic comment, when you have little children and you go and visit somebody, your aunt or your granny or whatever, or your friend says, my, haven't they grown? It's classic, isn't it? People come and visit us at church and they say, it's very different. It's very different. There's a liberty, spontaneity, a oneness of heart and soul in the gospel. Don't Let's squash that in the months ahead. Let's relish it and let it flourish, powered by the Holy Spirit. What about verses 32 to 37, the unity in the fellowship? Well, we cannot draw a straight line here. There are many examples later on in Acts of believers who didn't sell their possessions. 
<laughs> if you've got five houses and you would like to sell one and give me the money to distribute, I'm glad to do that for you. I would be glad to do that for you or with you. But that's not a prescription in the book of Acts. Wealth is not something the Bible ever says is wrong. It cautions people who are wealthy about the wisdom they need to use their money. But again and again, I meet wealthy, wealthy Christians who use their money with great generosity and liberality and powerfully for the work of the gospel. But that said, these verses, this description of the early Christian community is surely in some way a dotted line mandate for generosity and liberality and giving where we can materially our time, our gifts for the sake of the gospel. When Joe and Steph join the church. I've, I've rewritten the promises they'll make. I've just rewritten them so that in words we can all understand. I promise Lord Jesus to give generously, liberally of my time, my energy, my God-given gifts, my business brain, my gifts of teaching, my heart for people, and the money in my bank account for the work of the gospel in the world. That is a dotted line application of Acts chapter 2 so that no one is in need. I hope and pray that if somebody is in need in our church family, in your small group, you would have the discernment to see, and I know this happens, not publicly. Nobody's going to come up here on a Sunday and say, this week, four people were generous in their practical help of people who were in need. We're not going to say that, are we? But where God will lift his lid, I'm sure he would see that happening. One heart and soul. One heart and soul. Remember that phrase. There's a straight line too from Acts. What about the internal opposition and judgment, verses 1 to 11? What is the relevance of that to us? Well, I don't want to frighten us by these verses. They are exceptional times, exceptional events. But I do a little bit want to frighten us by these verses. I do. I need to. It's the same God, and he will not allow the spread of his gospel to be halted by any opposition in the end. It may be that his judgment will not come with a suddenness. It won't. Like the miracles, the suddenness here, the dramatic, supernatural. But we need to examine our own hearts. You see, God sees the generosity that goes on. God sees the praying that goes on. God sees the, the truth What are our underlying heart motivations in this church family? Bear your soul to God. Bear your soul to the Holy Spirit. Do not hinder the unity, the fellowship, the oneness, the work of the gospel. And do not doubt that in this wonderful, pivotal opportunity God has given us as a church, when people come in and they say, this is different, this is different, this is different, do not doubt that the devil will not be prowling all around this church family looking for someone to devour that, that one person or more than one person seeks to work against the oneness and the spirit of the unity of the church. And very often they can be ministers or leaders or somebody else quietly sitting in the church, just in their heart, working against. Examine our hearts before the Lord. There's the coffee on, reminding me to stop. Now, how do we finish up? Miraculous growth. Don't worry, the urn is not going to explode. 
it finishes up with miraculous growth. We'd love that, wouldn't we? Do you know what? There's a little bit of me thinking if we have miraculous evangelistic growth, we'd start grumping about that. But we would relish in our country, surely, if there was exponential gospel growth. We really would. We'd love it if, if the tide of drift into secularism just was halted and things began to just turn round that corner and the, the drift came to a shuddering halt. We'd love it if churches were growing fast with people being converted. But isn't it striking? And God, I am becoming convinced in this church family, is in control of the term card every term, not us when we write it. Isn't it great that today, of all days, there's nothing in this yet? In fact, there is. There's some water in it. Isn't it striking that today, in the next service, two young people, Steph and Joel, will stand up here and do exactly today what happened then in that day, albeit in bigger numbers. They will stand here behind this lectern, full of fear, and they will tell the people who are here how God has wonderfully invaded their lives with the Holy Spirit and brought them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is exactly what happened then. And let's pray to God that more and more people, young and old, men and women, children and 90-year-olds, people from languages and cultures and nations all over the world as they come to this city will stand up here or wherever else we are in a year and give their testimony. And the Lord will say, see what I promised in Acts chapter 1? There it is, fulfilled before your very eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this little insight into the community created by the Spirit of God, a community that prays with spirit empowerment for boldness. Help us so to pray for all the aspects of our church's life, a community united, one heart and soul. Lord, may that be true of us and other churches across this country a community bonded in real life, practical, otherworldly fellowship, giving and sharing. Lord, help us in all sobriety to be vigilant for the prowling tactics and antics of the devil seeking to occupy some heart and work against the unity and the oneness of the Christian community. And all we pray for growth. Growth like Joe and Steph standing up here and saying, yes, the Holy Spirit has cut me to the heart and led me to follow Jesus. May that be true of many people in the months and the years to come. And help us, Lord, to yield, to yield in our lives to the Holy Spirit, not to quench him, not to stifle him. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.